changes. What's the Word? Brought to you by Columbia Baptist Church in Columbia, Kentucky on 101.9 WAIN. I am Randy Johnson, the senior pastor at Columbia Baptist Church, and thank you for joining us every Wednesday night at 6 o'clock right here on 101.9 WAIN. Well, good evening once again. Thank you so much for joining me this evening on What's the Word? This is Randy Johnson, your host, every week at 6 o'clock on 101.9 WAIN or at 1270 AM or streaming at 1019WAIN.com. Thank you so much for joining me this evening, and thank you to WAIN for for hosting this radio show, and thank you to Columbia Baptist Church, the great folks that I have the blessed privilege of pastoring, and I have been really blessed even more so by having community sponsors like Adair Drug and Grissom Martin Funeral Home. So they also help to sponsor this radio show. And so I'm, I'm very thankful and, and always grateful just for the opportunity to spend an hour with you and to share my thoughts with what's going on in the world. How do we see the world through the lens of Scripture? How does God see the world? And how can we, as believers in Jesus Christ, grow in our relationship with Him because of how we see the world? You know, there's a lot of things that impact decisions we make. There's a lot of things that impact how we live. And different factors that come into our life may even determine, you know, the the, the course of our life, like what kind of job we have, who we marry, what our future might hold. But there is no stronger source of strength, information, encouragement, comfort, peace, any of those wonderful adjectives that we find in the Bible, there is no greater source of all of those things than a personal relationship with God. And so I want to encourage you, if maybe you're listening to this radio show and you found it, or maybe you're listening on my podcast, which is entitled Walk This Way, and you are a relatively new listener, maybe you've heard this show in bits and pieces in the past, but you have just tuned in and you're locked in and you want to listen for a little while. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, this is the show for you. This is a, 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 top, a topic that I want to cover tonight is one that I think will strengthen the walk of Christians and not only their faith, but also in sharing their faith with people that are not born again followers of Christ, as well as people that are not followers of Jesus. I think this topic tonight, at least to begin the show, I think will be worth your time and investment in this next hour. Each show that I put together, it usually has some kind of a theme. Uh, I usually weave the stories together as best I can. The ones that I have for you tonight are a little on the random side. But I want to lead off with something tonight that I had the opportunity to share with about 65, 70 college students over the last few weeks. I have the opportunity this semester at Lindsey Wilson College to teach a few classes, and one of the classes that I'm teaching is called Christian Beliefs. And if you were a student in recent years at Lindsey Wilson College, you probably also took Christian beliefs. And Dr. Swan, who uh, Terry Swan, who uh, wrote the book, has been a longtime teacher of this course. But they had a large influx of students, and they needed a couple of adjunct professors. And so I was privileged to be one of those adjunct professors. One of the topics in Christian beliefs is, in fact, understanding the existence of God, understanding what the Bible says about that, but also understanding what the Bible or what's not found in the Bible that even strengthens the argument that God actually exists. Because the classic argument for many, many years 
of skeptics, whether they're atheists who say there is no God, or agnostics that say, you know, there might be, but there might not be, I don't really know, and all the way down to people that are consistent believers in God and consistent believers in his son Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, all over the map, the argument has been against Christianity and even against Judaism before that, there is no God. Uh, The argument has been by many that they will say, whether they are just a a liberal um, critic of religion, or if they are just flat out, there is no God, there is no way to even know that there is a God, people will say that God is a creation of the human mind. And while that may be a popular criticism of Christianity and Judaism and and really other religions that claim to be monotheistic, but we're specifically talking about the Christian faith that has its roots in the Bible, that has evidence of the miracles of Jesus, that has evidence in the Bible as well as outside of the Bible of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus— How do we know that God exists? How do we know with what the Bible says, but even outside of the Bible, how can someone who is a believer in God, someone who is strong in their faith, how can they then turn around and say, I believe in God? What is the evidence that exists? Well, let me begin with giving you the answers that I shared with my Christian beliefs class. I shared with them three examples that are outside of the Bible that prove without any hesitation that God exists. And I shared these with them for the the reason of saying that someone could very simply say, I don't believe the Bible. Um, I don't prove to me that anything happened with the Bible, don't tell me that it, don't give me any examples from the Bible because I don't believe the Bible, some would say. And so, because of that argument, my response to them as college students is, and my evidence to you is simply to say if we then are going to dive into understanding the existence of God, what is there outside of the Bible? What is there in the world? How do we know what evidence exists? So I want to give you three different examples of evidence that exists in the world for the fact that God exists. The first one that I want to share with you is actually one that every single person has thought about, even if they've never considered it a gift or a rational line of thinking, a rational explanation about God. There is such a thing inside the human body called a conscience. And the best way to understand the conscience is to say that it is that inner voice that every person has to guide them in right and wrong behavior. In other words, how do you know that something is right? How do you know that something is wrong, even if you don't have a set of instructions to tell you? I'll give you an example. Let's just suppose that I meet you out on the street. Let's suppose that we see each other in a restaurant, pass each other in Walmart, run into one another at the bank. And my way of greeting people You, whether I know you or not, whether I smile at you or whether you smile at me, let's just suppose that my greeting of any person that I meet in any setting anywhere is to punch them in the face. Now, I can say, listen, this is how I greet people. This is my choice. This is my truth, uh, to to sound really modern about it. 
Uh, this is my interpretation of the world in which I live, and this is how I say hello to people. I punch them as hard as I can in the face. Everybody, everybody that I meet. So if I were to do that, what is it within you, the, the, the punchy, what is it within you that tells you, well, that's wrong? That's not an appropriate way to greet someone. Now, we're not talking about what does the Bible say. We're not talking, I'm not talking about laws. I'm not talking about anything that you can say from the Bible that tells you punching someone in the face is wrong. I'm just saying from a moral point of view, how do you know that that's not the correct way to greet somebody and that's not a nice way to greet somebody? Well, then you have to back up and say, well, who says that it's not nice? Well, probably the one who got punched would say it's not nice. And why would they say that? Because there's pain involved? Because they don't expect to be hit? There is within every person a conscience that determines things like this example I'm talking about. Things that are right, things that are wrong. Things that hurt, things that don't hurt. Things that are appropriate and things that are not. Now, you don't have to say, I believe the Bible, I believe in God, to have a conscience that points you toward right and defines for you certain things that are wrong. But using that example is a great example. Now, somebody might back up and say, oh, well, there's a law about assault. Okay, well, how did someone know that by putting a law in our county or anywhere in the United States or anywhere in the world that hitting someone in the face is against the law. Who said that that is wrong and why don't we change it to say it's right? If I say it's right, why can't it be right? Because you have a conscience. And people will say, and you put a group of people together, and I give them that scenario, it's not because they've been conditioned to say that's wrong. It's not because the Bible says that's wrong. It's not because the law says that wrong. it's wrong. It's because that person knows treating someone that way is wrong. Okay, let's break it down even further. Let's go to a preschool classroom. Let's go to a classroom of two-year-olds or three-year-olds and let's watch them play with toys. And let's put a shiny new toy, maybe a brand new fire truck that has a movable ladder, it has lights, it has sounds. Let's say it sprays a little water, it, it, it's a remote control. I mean, let's just say this is a thousand dollar miniature version of a fire engine and we put one of them in the classroom of say 15 or so two-year-olds or three-year-olds you will learn in a hot second that the first child to touch that now believes that that toy is theirs and any other child that wants to touch it now they're infringing on their property and any certainly any child that would walk up to a two-year-old or a three-year-old and push that child down and take that new fire engine from them, now you have somebody crying, now you have some feelings that are hurt, and now you have someone who has made a choice to do something quote-unquote wrong because it was what they wanted to do. Who defines right and wrong? Who says that taking a toy from another fellow student at two and three years old, who says, well, the teacher says we've got to learn to share? How did she make that judgment? How did that two-year-old or three-year-old know that, they, that a push was required to remove that other child from the toy and that they had to snatch it from them? And how long will that child have it before someone does that to them? My point is very simply this, evidence for right and wrong is not something that comes from a book, it is not something that is taught, it is not necessarily a product of environment. Every person, since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, when they 
ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, now we have a conscience that still that little small voice inside of our head or even that feeling inside of our gut that is given to us from the moment that we are born and conceived even, but the moment that we're born, we begin to operate on that conscience that tells a certain value system of something that is right and something that is wrong. That is internal evidence of the existence of God. There is a supreme difference. There is a divine difference between right versus wrong. And that is not a creation of the world. That comes from God. That is evidence that every single person is born with a nature that either gravitates occasionally toward good or gravitates occasionally toward bad. And that comes from God. That is evidence that we are created in the image of God and the image that God gave us, that personality that God gave us that was supposed to be reflective of his personality, now has sin in it and now we have a sinful nature that is bent toward sin. No longer is our personality one that reflects our creator. Now our personality reflects what we want, what we think, and our selfishness. So the first evidence of the one true and living God is the fact that we have a conscience that delivers for us right versus wrong. The other that I want to give to you is what I call divine design. Now, I did not create this idea, no pun intended. I did not come up with this idea. But the idea of or the explanation of divine design can be seen in a number of different places. For example, if you think about the complexity of the human body, you think about the manner in which a tree that is in your backyard gets sunlight, processes that sunlight, gets water and processes that water and grows and has leaves or flowers or fruit. You think about the complexity of the human body, as I said a moment ago. You think about the fact that you have vital organs. Think about the fact that you have blood flowing through your arteries and veins. You have air going into your lungs and providing oxygen to blood cells in your body. You have muscles and tendons and bones and, and, and you have cells inside of your body that break down energy. You have cells inside your body that store energy. You have cells in your body that store fat. You have DNA that determines your height, your weight, your skin color, your eye color, the length of your fingers. We have fingerprints that are completely unique to each and every person, and no two are the same. The complexity of the human body. Think for just a moment about how human life even begins. You have a female egg and a male sperm, two opposite opposing sources of human DNA. Those two sources of DNA combine and the sperm fertilizes the egg and begins to duplicate, begins to grow and develop. And inside of the protection of the female womb, you have an entire human body that is knit together and woven together and fashioned and grows in a around a nine-month process. And then miraculously, that child can live inside of a person for nine months, can then be born, and within seconds breathe on their own air that you've been breathing the whole time that that child has been developing inside that fluid sac inside of a mother's womb. Still not convinced? Let me give you another example of divine design. You think about the gas mixture 
that is in the air that you breathe? Do you know the mixture of gases that form the atmosphere of the earth? Let me just break it down for you like this. Dry air is composed of nitrogen, which is 78.09%. You have oxygen, that is 20.95%. You have argon, that is 0.93%. And carbon dioxide, that is 0.03%. And several trace gases that have very minute percentages. Those numbers are completely random. I mean, we're not even talking about whole numbers. We're talking about numbers with even odd decimal places after them. What would the earth be like if nitrogen at 78.09% decided one day to be 58.09%? And oxygen said, you know, I'm going to take those extra 20% and I'm going to be 40.95%. What would life be like on the planet if the percentages of those gases were suddenly changed? If we had way less nitrogen, way more oxygen, far less oxygen or or, or nitrogen, far less oxygen in in the earth... A, a tremendous amount more argon and a, and a lot less or a lot more carbon dioxide. I mean, you just start playing with these numbers. What would life be like on this planet? I'll tell you exactly what it would be like. It wouldn't exist. If we did not have the complexity of the gas-air mixture in the air that we breathe, plants couldn't exist, animals couldn't exist, Human life couldn't exist. If those different percentages were off for any length of time, then life as we know it on this planet would cease to exist. Now, when I talk about divine design, what I mean is the ecosystem, the air that we breathe, The complexity of the human body is far too complex to believe in random chance. To say that over the course of billions and or trillions of years, cells somehow decided to and figured out ways to to spawn different species and to produce human life, to produce different plant life, to produce different animal life and different species within those, the ridiculous notion that everything that exists that we know is here strictly by random chance, the world is too complex, the earth and its ecosystem, the air that we breathe, the complexity of the human body, the sacredness of the human body, and and the process of human life developing in a mother's womb is far too precious and far too complicated to just simply believe that we are all here by nothing more than chance. The divine design of everything that exists screams for order in the universe, not order that has come from once upon a time chaos, but rather from a divine design of the one true and living God who orchestrated all aspects of creation, has designed it all exactly to be exactly how it should be so that life can function. You have the conscience, the difference between right and wrong. Second of all, you have divine design, the complexity of the world in which we live. But I want to give you the third and what I believe to be the most compelling answer as to why God exists. And this answer, like the other two, are not found in the pages of the Bible the way that I'm going to share them with you. 
Now, the Bible gives an answer to what I'm about to say, and the Bible gives answer to the conscience. The Bible gives answer to the complexity of life, and the Bible does give an answer for what I'm about to share with you. But even apart from the Bible, take the Bible completely out of this discussion because I have not quoted chapter and verse in either of those two arguments, nor will I in this one. The third argument that I believe is in all seriousness the most compelling and the one in which atheists, agnostics, critics, religious critics cannot answer is in order for something to have a beginning, there has to be a beginner. In other words, the idea that the Big Bang caused the creation of the world and that there was some kind of material, some kind of something that struck one another and from that, like an atomic explosion, the world was created, the universe was created. Even as, to me, as ridiculous as that sounds, those two pieces of whatever it is that came together to bang and to explode had to have something or someone put them there. The simplest way that I can tell you this is you cannot create something from nothing. You cannot take nothing and create whatever you want from nothing. Try it. Go into your garage. Look at your, uh, at your workbench. Go into your kitchen. Stare at the counter. Put nothing on the counter and create biscuits. You cannot do it. You have to take things that already exist and put them together in order to create something. You have to have a design, you have to have material, you have to have the knowledge of how to put it together, you have to have all of the correct materials to hold it together. You cannot go into a workshop and build a birdhouse with no materials. The idea that atheists, agnostics, non-believers in Christianity, non-believers in God, critics of religion can say, I believe that I am a mere product of the universe. I came from the universe. Okay, fine. Let's say you came from the universe. Who put the universe there? Where did the universe come from? Because if you start with nothing, you're going to end up with nothing. But if you start with something, then you can have something. But the question comes back to who or what put that something there. In order for something to begin, you have to have a beginner. And the idea that the complexity of the world and the universe and the expanse of all the stars and the galaxies that exist, the idea that the earth exist rotating on an axis, rotating around the sun, has the perfect mixture of air that we breathe for plant life, animal life, for fresh water, and for humans to exist, the complexity of the human body and how it forms from the smallest minuscule genetic material and in nine months creates a human, the idea that you, within your own mind, have a conscience that will steer you either toward right versus wrong, that is not a product of your raising, it is a product of your own genetic material and the life that you have. You put all of those things together and look me in the eye and say, I believe all of that came from nothing then I will tell you that you are denying with more faith, you are denying the existence of God with a stronger faith than it takes to say, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. See, even the fact that you say, and some of you may, I don't believe that God exists, that is a statement of faith. It's not a statement of fact, it's a statement of faith. You believe that there is no God. 
I'm telling you ways that you can know that there is something and certainly someone who is greater than you, smarter than you, holds everything together, has more answers than modern science will even ever know. Listen, let, let's, let's take modern science for an example. People say, well, I'm a science and reason kind of person. Well, that's fantastic. That's great that you believe in science because I would say that God does too. But let's just take modern science and let me ask you a question. Why is it that every day, every week, every year, modern science learns more? Why is it that modern science learns more about the human mind, more about the human condition of cancer and heart disease and all of these other sicknesses? Why is it that modern science is growing and developing their knowledge and their information and their research? Where is all this information coming from? Where is all this knowledge coming from? Are they creating additional things to study because everything that they've already studied, they know 100% and there's nothing new to learn? No, you take the human body, you take cancer cells, you take something like heart disease, you take something that research is being done to investigate even deeper, and I'm telling you that same information has been locked away in those cells, in the DNA, in the complexity of the human body. It's just that we have to learn more of what has already been designed. The, the design of the human body is not changing. The design of the universe is not, is not changing. But you see, we as finite people have to develop better telescopes to see further, better spaceships to go farther. We have to develop stronger microscopes to see deeper into the human body. We have to research certain aspects of the human body to learn more. The human body is not developing into a greater bank of information. It's just that our limit of understanding only goes so far. And do you know what that tells you? That tells you that somebody far more intelligent than you designed the human body. The fact that there are limitations to what you know and limitations to what you understand screams to the fact that we are the product of the God of creation. The one true and living God who put everything together, holds it all together, and is the one who is responsible for everything that exists in creation. This is not a product of the human understanding. This is not a product of human learning. This is an awareness of the fact that as humans, there is a limit to what we know. And we crave more knowledge. We crave more research. And just the fact that we have to research and spend money to research how we can eliminate cancer, to learn how and research how we can eliminate certain diseases, the fact that people research in science shows you they don't know everything. To say that I am a science and reason person, I cannot believe, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Friend, I am, I am here to tell you with all the authority that I can, with all the assurance that I can, that the fact that science doesn't have all the answers is, in fact, evidence for the one true and living God. The fact that your doctor doesn't know everything the fact that there that you have to run tests to figure out what's happening inside the human body that is evidence that we don't know everything and the only person who does is the one who designed the human body and i am sorely afraid that science will never admit that god is the divine designer that he is the beginner of everything that has begun and apart from God beginning creation and creating everything, in order for there to have been something, 
there had to have been someone. And if you say, I believe in the Big Bang, then my question to you is, who put the stuff together that banged? Who put whatever it is that you believe collided together, how did that get there? Don't tell me that it always existed because you have no answer for how it began. In order for something to have a beginning, it must have a beginner. And you and I cannot create something out of nothing. We do not have that power. God, however, because he is divine, because his nature is not of this world, only God can create everything and hold it all together. So I presented all that information to college students at Lindsay Wilson this past semester. And I shared that with them and I asked all three of my Christian belief classes. I put them in small groups of three or four. And I said, now that I've given you all three of those examples, now what I want you to do is I want you to tell me which of those three do you think are the strongest evidence that God exists outside of the Bible. I was absolutely overwhelmed that most of them chose the beginner, the very last one. I thought most of them would go with the divine design because there are nurses, there are people in uh, education, there are people in, in you know going into other medical fields and others like that, and they instantly, just instantly to me, would gravitate towards something that would be scientific. No. An overwhelming majority of the students in Lindsay Wilson College that took Christian beliefs this semester under me said, in order for there to have a beginning, there must be a beginner. I was both pleased and shocked that they felt that way. But this is the supreme argument of how do we know that God exists outside of the Bible. And I'm telling you, you can use these sources of information to at least start a conversation with someone. How do you know that you know that you know that God exists? And if your answer is, well, the Bible says, there are going to be people that say, no, I don't believe the Bible. Now, I believe that inside of the Bible, even if you don't believe what it says, or if you don't believe the divine aspect of what it says, there are lots of historical pieces of evidence inside the Bible. I'll give you an example. There are hundreds of prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. Hundreds. There was a mathematician back in the 50s who decided to do a little research. And he said, what would the probability be that Jesus would have fulfilled eight of those Old Testament prophecies? Just eight. Not all of them. Not hundreds, mind you. Just eight. He took eight of the more common recognizable prophecies and said, what would the probability be that a man born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, a man named Jesus, would have fulfilled eight of those prophecies. Now, if you don't know what probability is, it means what are the chances uh, out of a certain number, you know, one the probability of this one person, how many how likely is it that this one person would do this particular thing? For example, if I had a coin and that coin has heads and tails, the probability of me flipping that coin up and getting heads is one out of two, right? Because I'm flipping it one time and there's two options. Well, when you have eight prophecies, the probability is in all seriousness, is mind-boggling. What he found was for Jesus to have fulfilled eight prophecies, the probability was 1 times 10 
to the 17th power. Now, if you write down the number 10 and follow that with 17 zeros, that's the number in terms of probability of the likelihood that one person would fulfill all eight of those prophecies. I don't even know how to pronounce that number, but it's really, really big. So let me put this in dummy terms for you, just like he did 50, 60 years ago. He said, let's just suppose that you had a silver dollar. Now, those are harder to come by today, so we'll just say like a 50-cent piece or a little bit bigger than a quarter. He said, let's just suppose that you had 10 to the 17th power, that number of silver dollars. He said that would fill the state of Texas a foot and a half, almost two feet deep, the entire state of Texas. That's how many we're talking about. It is an insane number, but that's how many of those silver dollars that would fill the state of Texas two feet deep. He said the probability of one person fulfilling eight prophecies of Jesus would be like marking one of those silver dollars somewhere in the state of Texas. So like, you know, marking it with a, a, a magic marker, permanent marker putting it somewhere in those two feet all over the state of Texas, just dropping it one place, blindfolding somebody, telling them that they have one shot to pull out one silver dollar in the entire state of Texas, one shot, one, one grab, and getting it on the very first time. He said that's the probability of one person fulfilling eight of the prophecies about Jesus, and yet there are hundreds. Now, you might say to me, well, I don't believe the Bible to be true. How can you argue with what I just shared with you that people that wrote the Bible six, seven hundred years before, eight, nine hundred years, a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, how could you argue with the fact that these People prophesied about the birth of the Messiah and the specifics of his life and his death and his ministry and his death, burial, and resurrection, having no idea when he would come in time. We're talking about documents in the Old Testament that were verifiably written six, seven, eight hundred years before the birth of Jesus. Not documents that were forged. Not documents that were made up afterwards to say, hey, let's come up with a great story and say that this Jesus person is the Messiah and let's write all this stuff down and prove that Jesus really was the Messiah. No, we're talking about the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, book of Haggai, Micah, Psalms. I mean, we're talking about books in the Old Testament that people already had memorized by the time Jesus was born and these that Jesus quoted and that the gospel writers quoted as evidence of saying, hey, Jesus fulfilled all these things. The probability of one person fulfilling eight of the hundreds of prophecies of Jesus is astronomical. And so when people say, well, I don't believe the Bible's true, I don't believe that Jesus existed, listen, you have non-Jewish, non-Christian historians that wrote about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus in the first and second centuries. You have people outside of the Gospels, outside of the New Testament, you have people that were current historians that wrote verifiable information about Jesus and his claims and his death and his resurrection, and we're not even talking about information found inside the Bible. In fact, many critical, non-believing, critical authors, religious critics say, that the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the easiest 
historical claim to verify, not just because of the Gospels, but because of these other sources that came in at other times, that, that were written at the same time and, and were not even Christian followers, not even Jewish followers. The, the fact that we're talking about, that, that I'm talking to you about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, there are people that, that don't even debate that anymore, that are not Jews, they're not Christians, they're not Muslims, they're not anything. They don't even debate the fact that Jesus was resurrected. They don't even debate the fact that Jesus was crucified. They debate the fact that this person who lived, died, and rose again has any impact in their life today. And what I'm sharing with you is, well, what if I meet somebody who doesn't believe the Bible? What if I meet somebody who doesn't believe in God? What if I meet somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus? I'm offering to you information outside of the pages of Scripture that only strengthen the validation of what we already know to be true that's found in the Bible. And so even if you say you meet somebody who says, hey, I don't believe in the Bible, at the very least you can say, well, let's start a discussion with stuff that I know to be true outside of the Bible that points to the validity of not only the existence of God, but also validating the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. I could spend a whole hour plus talking about the resurrection of Jesus. But this is why we share our faith. Because there are people that just don't know. They do not believe. They have a hard time getting past their questions, have a hard time getting past their doubts. We don't have to call people names. We don't have to pretend that they are the ones who are ignorant. All we need to do is, in love, sit down with somebody and say, well, here is some clear topics of discussion that at the very least we can have a conversation of if what I'm telling you is true about divine design, the conscience, the fact that in order to have a beginning there must be a beginner. Let's talk about those things. How would those things not say that there is a one true and living God. Let's talk about the fact that the, that the Bible does say that 500 people saw Jesus alive at the exact same time, and many of whom were still alive 30 and 40 years after the resurrection and could validate the fact that they saw Jesus at the same time. You know, some people would say, well, it was a hallucination. Nowhere in recorded history have a has a large group of people or even two people had the exact same experience with a hallucination whether you eat mushrooms whether you take some kind of a mind altering drug whether you smoke something that gives you a hallucination it is impossible to have the exact same experience with a hallucination from one person to the next let alone 500 people at the same time we're not just talking about 500 people total. We're talking about 500 people in one place at one time saw Jesus alive. It's physically impossible for them to have the same hallucination. And then for them to, most of them to be alive and to validate what they saw, and then to have the apostles die for their faith in the resurrection why would these men have died as a result of a lie? If they didn't see Jesus alive and if they really didn't believe this to be true, what? why would they lie about it? If their life is on the line to protect a lie, what would they get out of it? Again, the reason that they didn't turn from the faith is because they were eternally convinced they knew that Jesus was alive. They saw the empty tomb. They talked to him. They ate fish with him. They walked with him for 40 plus days after he was resurrected before he ascended into heaven. So we have all of these topics of discussion that would at least cause somebody who's skeptical to think. 
and at least get them to question whether or not it takes more faith to not believe or if they can take the faith that they have in their unbelief and then turn it to belief and instead of being a skeptic, become a believer in Jesus and say, yes, I was afraid to believe. And most people are afraid to believe in Jesus because they honestly think that something is going to happen to them. And that thing is called change. So this leads me to this question. Why is it then that Christians who are followers of Jesus, believers in God, they believe in the authority of the Bible, why do they do what they do? If it is all a lie, why don't they just walk away? You know, as I have traveled around and I've talked to different believers in different states, I've gone to Southeast Asia and I've met with Asian pastors and I've done some teaching, seminary teaching in Southeast Asia, Central Asia. As I have heard the testimony of more people, it becomes so painfully obvious to me that what we share in our experience of grace and mercy and forgiveness is the power of God. And what I love to hear about is the intangible things. I'm not talking about information. I'm not talking about goosebumps that you get in a worship service. I'm not talking about you know times that you had some need met, like you know I needed groceries one week and you know fifty dollars was in my was in my account that I didn't know was there, or I got a check for a hundred dollars in the mail, or you know something like that. I'm talking about even intangible things like peace comfort. I'm, I'm talking about a, a mending of relationships that can only be attributed to a supernatural presence of the one true and living God. I, I have seen and, and personally experienced, and I have talked to people who have personally experienced more interaction with the Holy Spirit and with the the presence of God to bring peace and comfort and joy and just a sense of calmness in their life in some of their worst moments. And it didn't come from them. It didn't come from their friends. It didn't come from, you know, some mysterious force. It came from God. And here at Columbia Baptist Church, one of the things that I'm really excited about is the opportunity that we have as a church to make much about Jesus, to point people to Jesus. I can't help you. Our church members can't help you. Sitting in a worship service is not going to solve all of your problems. Becoming a member of a church is not going to fix all of your needs and all of your problems. But Jesus is always the answer. And I met a group of guys about 15 years ago and I got a phone call one day from a guy named Mike Hagen. And Mike just out of the blue called me while I was the pastor here at Columbia Baptist Church. And it was in 2003. And he said, hi, my name is Mike Hagen. I have a ministry called the Strength Team. I'm a former vice president of the Power Team, which I had heard of, had seen. And he said, I would like to talk with you about the possibility of doing a crusade in your town, coming there to Columbia and having a three and four night presentation of the gospel with guys that are going to break bricks, bend steel. They take frying pans and roll them in their hands. They rip through phone. I'm mean, talking about four inch phone books in a matter of seconds. They run through walls of ice. They do all of this ridiculous stuff. And so I I had them at our church. And we did two crusades with them here at Columbia. I've done one in Baton Rouge. I did one when I was a pastor in Illinois. And we're about to have another one. October the 24th, 
through the 27th, just a few weeks away, the strength team, guys that are going to do all of those feats of strength that I just mentioned to you, they rip license plates in, uh, in half, they take horseshoes and they bend them around to the shape of a heart. You're talking about massive hand, arm, leg strength to be able to do all these crazy things. They're coming to Adair County High School. And every night, from Thursday night through Sunday night, they're going to put on a spectacular show. And why do these guys do it? They do it because it grabs the attention of people that may never darken the doors of a church, and it gives them the opportunity to tell you, now let me share with you where the real power in my life comes from. Let me share with you what really makes me who I am. It's not my ability to crush blocks. It's not my ability to rip a license plate or bend a, a steel bar. It is the power of God in my life. And I want to invite you to come. So Thursday night, October the 24th, it'll be at 7 o'clock at Adair County High School Gym. Friday night is going to be after the football game at the fifth quarter. Everybody's invited. It'll be, probably be around 9 o'clock, 9.30. In fact, Adair County plays Taylor County that night. It'll be a huge game. Lots of folks will come out. It'll be a, it'll, it'll be a blast. And then on Saturday night and Sunday night, it will also be at 7 o'clock, those two nights at Adair County High School Gym. If you know somebody who has questions about what does it mean to be a Christian, how do I know this stuff is real, how do I know that Jesus has the power to change my life, bring them to these programs, these nightly programs, to hear the story of these remarkable people that have had a change in their life only from Jesus Christ. Yes, these guys can do amazing things. They can do feats of strength that will leave your jaw just hitting the floor. You will see them do some crazy stuff with fire and ice and bricks and steel and frying pans and all of this crazy stuff. But they do it all so that they can share a life-altering eternity-changing message of Jesus Christ. So if you know somebody that needs to come, look us up on Facebook. You'll find some videos about the strength team. You'll find some information about that, and, and that way you can like it and share it, put it on your Facebook feed. You can like it, which you'll get updates as the event gets closer and and you will be able you'll be remind Facebook will remind you that this thing is coming up. But find our Facebook page, go to Columbia, you know, search for Columbia Baptist Church in Columbia, Kentucky on Facebook, like our page, and then you can find those events on about the strength team on our Facebook page, like those events as well, and then that will remind you, and then you can share it on your Facebook page, and that will encourage your friends. You can even type in their name on Facebook and tag them. On our page, you don't even have to share it. But if you know specific friends that you're thinking about that need to hear this message of life change, then you can encourage them to hear this message, come out and see this program, and be a part of it. And I also want to encourage you to be a part of our church. I really love what God is doing in our church and in the small groups that we have. We call them life groups and how we spend time together throughout the week how we worship together on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock uh, in the morning, and then we have Bible studies for everyone around 10, 15, 10, 30. And there's something for everybody. And we have a wonderful evening program. We have a meal at 5.30 for every single person. And then at 6.15, we have something. We have nursery. We have preschool. We have children. We have students, uh, high school, middle school. We have a college Bible study, and we have an adult Bible study. We've got something for everybody, and I want to invite you to be a part of it. We're at 201 Greensburg Street. Make it a part of your Sunday morning and Sunday evening schedule to join us for worship, to join us for Bible study, to join us for a meal, and to join us for just a wonderful time of Christian fellowship. We'd love to have you at Columbia Baptist Church. Well, as always, this has been the fastest hour of my week, but it is time to say 
Good night. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope that the rest of your week is even better than the first part of the week. And may God bless you and make you a blessing to others. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, this is Pastor Randy Johnson. Thank you so much for joining me for What's the Word? That show airs every Wednesday night at 6 o'clock on 101.9 WAIN right here in the heart of Adair County in Columbia, Kentucky. Or you can catch the replay of What's the Word on my podcast, which is called Walk This Way. And you can find that in several different places. You can find it at anchor.fm backslash walk this way on the internet, or you can find it on different apps and, and places that carry podcasts like iTunes, Spotify, Pocket Cast, and all sorts of uh, places. You can find this broadcast. You can find messages that I've preached. And I just want to encourage you to make it a point to tune in, subscribe, and listen to all sorts of content that's on my podcast, which is called, again, Walk This Way. Thank you so much for joining me.